Good morning, church. How are you guys? Good. Um, did I? Sarah, welcome back. I didn't get to say that. I don't normally call people out right at the beginning of sermon, but she's been gone for like, I don't know, eight months or whatever, however long it's been. It's good to have you back because um, we're family here at Freshwater. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that you're here today. If I haven't met you, please come find me after the service. And I really mean that. I would love to meet you. I would love to find out how you ended up here. And I was just talking to someone before the service. We always want this to be a, a safe place for you to ask any question you have, any thoughts that you have. You don't have to hide at this church. That's what Corey was saying. If we're going to love people well, we got to all be honest about where we are. Because if we're honest about where we are, we can all grow together. Amen? Like, we don't, have to, we don't have to pretend here. I was talking about Mark before the service. Like, we got to just be open and honest about who we are and where we've been. And praise God, we got stories like Corey's, right, who was a mess. But Jesus saves people who are a mess all the times and makes them beautiful. That's what he does. And so praise God for that. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in Matthew the whole time today, so this should be easy for all of us. Um, because if you haven't been with us, we're walking through a, a series called We Are the Church. And today we're going we're gonna to have fun. Um, have you ever heard the phrase that maybe at work or at a family get-together, never bring up church or politics? We're going to test that theory today. Um, that's what we're, exactly what we're going to be talking about today in, in our series. So if you haven't been with us, what, what we've been doing, like I know we, I said we're going to talk about politics today, but really what we've been doing is looking at like what is the church? And so we looked at like what is the point of the church and what is the purpose of the church? And then when we kind of defined that in week one, week two, we looked at what does it mean to be the church? Because the church is not a building. It's not an organization. I know it gets treated that way sometimes, but that's not what the church is. It's the bride of Christ, right? And so what does it look like to actually be the church? And then the last couple of weeks, we've been really looking through, okay, since we, we know what the church is and we know what we're supposed to be as Christians, like what it's supposed to look like, how do we see the world ultimately through Christ's holiness, Right, we call that a Christian worldview. How do we see things, not like the culture, but like God is calling us to, with a Christian worldview, or a phrase I've been using a lot in this series, through the lens of holiness. Because God wants a lot more for us than for us to be good rule followers. He's not looking for good rule followers. He's looking for worshipers that are set free in his goodness to experience the joy of who he is, right, and who we are in him. And so how can we set aside just trying to be good enough or just trying to avoid sin and walk in the freedom of holiness, Man, I think Eric and I were just talking this week about, um, I think he brought up, it was basketball we talked about, right? Like, can you imagine getting a bunch of grown men on a basketball court, throwing the ball in the middle and say, okay, the, the goal is to get that ball in the hoop, and that was the only thing that you had for guidelines? What would that be like? If you got a bunch of guys, it, as, as Eric said, uh, yeah, that'd be a bloodbath, right? With no rules, with no regulations, with no one there to say what was right or wrong in the game. It wouldn't be a game. It would be a bloodbath of people trying to get one ball in a hoop, and that's all you would know. No, God gives us the rules. He sets the rules in place, his commands, so that we can experience freedom. Without, without commands, without God protecting us, all we have is chaos. Life is a bloodbath, and a lot of you know exactly what that's like. You chased your own freedom forever, and you found out this isn't freedom. This is slavery. This is oppression. This is weight. No, God is, doesn't want good rule followers. He wants people to walk and to understand and know his holiness because that's what actually sets us free. It's what we were created to walk in. And so that's really what we've been looking at in this series. And if we look at everything through the lens of holiness, how does that define everything we do? And so last week we looked at like social media and the news and the things that we're putting into our minds, a real easy topic. And this week we're going to be talking about politics, church and politics. I think it's just going to get worse as we go through this series. So just buckle in, right? Um, but, but here's the thing, this was an encouraging, it was an encouraging thing for me to, to walk through and think about. So I thought, since this is a complicated topic, I'd just start simple, and I'd just give us a definition of politics. I, at least that's what I thought I was going to do, and then I started reading all the different definitions of politics. No wonder we can't agree on anything politically. We can't agree on what the definition of politics is. It was crazy. I had like a list of like seven, and they all kind of said something different. So hey, we're just... We're going to try to keep it as uncomplicated as possible. Here's what we're doing today, right? What we're going to be talking about today is as Christians, as disciples of Christ, biblically, how are we to engage with our government, with policy, and with our fellow citizens as we navigate the best way to run and govern our country? That's really what politics are, right? That's what, and, that, and we're talking about how do we engage with all of that as Christians today. So before we dive into this sermon, I just want to make something really clear I don't know your church background or what you've heard about churches if you're not a church person. Um, this sermon isn't today about me telling you how you should vote on all the big topics. That's not what today's about. Or what you should think on a very particular 
political topic. Now listen, there is value in talking about those things. There's a value in getting down into the nitty-gritty. And as the series goes along, we're going to get a little bit more specific. But that's not what today is about, right? Today is about trying to wrestle with, as Christ followers, how do we navigate in a very political wor- world? And bi- biblically, what clear direction does, does God give us, does Jesus give us on how we engage in these things? Does that make sense? Today's the foundation, as I've said in this series before, this series, I'm trying as, as much as possible to not make this series about my opinions or your opinions. Although, again, I want to say this one more time, when, especially when it comes to politics, there is value in talking about these things and discussing these things and, and even having friendly, friendly debates on these topics, right? That can be good and right and valuable. I, I, and I want you to hear that from me up front because that's not what we're doing today, right? Today, we're just laying the foundation as so when we go into more complicated topics, we're all on the same page. Does that make sense? Because I think some of you want me to stay away from politics and some of you want me to get down in it, right? And we'll get down in it a little bit in the coming weeks. But today, we're like laying the foundation because think, think about it this way. Man, even if you have this like almost like, perfect house, this beautiful house, it just looks perfect, right? But if it's built on a faulty foundation, what's going to happen? The cracks are coming. And if the cracks aren't dealt with, eventually that thing is coming down. And I think that that's where we are as a culture right now. Not just as a culture, but as a church. Our foundation has cracks in it. I feel like our foundation is close to crumbling. And so today, we're just going to try to build the right foundation. So then when we go into more detail, when we go under specific topics, we'll be able to stand on a strong foundation and we won't be close to crumbling. Am I making sense here? So that's where we're going today. Um, And hopefully that'll be more beneficial as we go through, because the whole point today is, as we engage in political things, how can we reflect the glory of Jesus Christ? Because I don't see a lot of reflection of Jesus Christ in the political world today, Christian or non-Christian, do you? And so we need a strong foundation. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to simply just look at Jesus's life today and how he handled these things. That's what we're doing. And, you know, I've heard many people say, well, um, yeah, we need to be political because Jesus was political. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged in politics. That's not my point. But I've heard people say, well, Jesus was political. And here's an opinion. I just kind of respectfully disagree with that whole mentality. I think Jesus wasn't really political at all. But I also think Jesus weighed right into political topics. Now, how can you have both of those things? Right? Well, so often, I think Jesus was concerned with leading people into the kingdom of God, and he was interested in dealing with biblical things, biblical topics. But how often do things that God's called us to in politics end, 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 end up interceding, end up crossing over? Right? All the time. And so Jesus ended up addressing political things all the time. It happened again and again and again. And I think that's why people say that Jesus was political. And in that way, they're right. Right? I'm kind of mincing words here. Right? And that, that way, they're right. But I want us to see how he actually handled these political things. Because for Jesus, it was more, in some ways, it was almost more complicated for him. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at four different stories in the Gospel of Matthew, all in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at how Jesus handled these things, how he responded to these things. Um, And so hopefully it'll give us a little bit um, of wisdom and guidance on how we engage in a political world. But let me give you a a little context, because this is why it was complicated for Jesus. What was interesting in his time is, most of the political leaders were also the religious leaders, right? When I say religious leaders, you're going to hear word, the word Pharisees a lot today, the Sadducees, the scribes. Those were the religious leaders, but they were also the political leaders. Now, if you know your history at all, Israel was under the oppression, under the rule of the Roman Empire. So technically, the political leaders were Rome. But who do the people really follow? You think they really followed the governors of Rome? No, they followed their leaders, and their, their leaders were religious leaders, So when the religious leaders came and they challenged Jesus, yes, they were biblical topics, but in reality, they were highly debated political topics. You following me on that? So it was a very, it was a very political atmosphere. So hotly debated, in fact, that they were, they were constantly trying to trap Jesus in these different political things so that he might turn the people against him. Now, does that sound familiar? Is that not the same tactic that happens all the time with different politicians all, all the time when they're debating, trying to trap each other, trying to get them to say something that's going to turn everybody else against them or make them look bad? That's what they're constantly trying to do to Jesus. Use the strategy of fear and anger and forcing Jesus into a controversial position so that they might take him down or so that people might think less of him. It, does that not kind of describe politics as a whole? Like, it's almost all fear-mongering and anger and bitterness and division, and that's what they were trying to do to Jesus. 
And so um, it was a very political move. And so that, we're going to look at how Jesus responded in these religious but also very political situations. So you guys ready to look at the first example? Let's look at the first one in Matthew 12. We're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to read two different stories, really, in this one. Um, Matthew 12, and we're going to read through verse 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was the day of rest. It was a big deal for them. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said, Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Meaning the priests would work on the Sabbath for the sake of the people. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, here, listen to this. If you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Keep going to verse 9. He went on from there and he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, deformed hand. And they asked him, is it lawful? The religious leaders asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Listen to how they respond to this in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They wanted to destroy Jesus for this. Now, in our time I realized that the Sabbath, right, the day of rest that represented the day that that God rested on the seventh day may not seem like a very political topic. And it's not for us nowadays. But for them, this was a huge deal. A huge deal. It was very political as well as very religious. And it was all rooted in religion, but it became a very political issue. So much debate, so much anger, so much division, and hear me, so much condemnation for people who weren't doing it right, whatever side of this argument you were on. Right? And the Pharisees in particular thought that doing anything that could even remotely be considered work was sinful. Now, I'll, I'll, as we go through this, I want to I be careful not to just come out and just condemn the Pharisees as these terrible people. In some ways they were, in some ways they're committing evil, but a lot of this came from good intentions. They were, trying, they were very, very, very serious about following the laws of God, right? And we should be serious about following God's commands, amen? But they were the, they were the most serious. They took it so far that they took it far beyond what God wanted, what he ever said, and that's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is like, what are you doing? What are you saying? You've gone so far beyond what is lawful. You know, it went so far that the Pharisees had a law on the book, extra biblical law on the book, that you couldn't carry a needle and thread in your pocket at the same time on the Sabbath. Does, does that make sense? You see, you see why? They might touch. And that's the beginning of sewing. That's the beginning of work. And so that you couldn't carry a needle and thread. Do you see how far self-righteousness and self-condemnation and making it about the wrong things, that's how far this thing can go. Don't act like it can't go that far. Right? And so that, this is how far, they, and they were incredibly harsh about it, and they looked down on others who didn't agree with him, which is exactly what they were doing to Jesus. They were trying their hardest to condemn him. And when he healed a guy on the Sabbath, healed him, they condemned him and wanted to destroy him, meaning kill him, because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill him for this. They wanted to destroy his reputation completely for this. They were incredibly harsh about it, and they looked down on others who didn't agree with him. Again, does that sound familiar? It feels like that's 80% of our political environment now. You don't agree with me. You're absolutely wrong. You're one of them. I look down on you. It's just condemnation. So when Jesus and his disciples pulled the grain to eat it, that was work. And they just couldn't believe that they would do that. But what did Jesus do? I want to see how Jesus responded. He didn't talk about all the different factions and all the different opinions and talk about the theory of the thing. Right? He didn't even debate them. What did he do? He went straight to the word of God. You know, with good intentions, and again, I think a lot of the people that we're debating that we disagree with, hey, we, we, 
nowadays in the political environment, everybody that doesn't agree with us is evil. Everybody that doesn't agree with us is wrong. Everyone that agrees with us is, is brain dead or stupid or have a mental, like we even hear people talk about the other side, whatever the other side is, that they've got a mental illness. You ever heard that one? That's just like liberalism is a mental disease. You ever heard that? Ever said that? Like flip it. Like it's, it, I'm not picking on little. It's both sides. Say the same things like that. Right? But the fact of the matter is most people have at least somewhat good intentions. They, the reason they're so passionate about it is because they think they're right. Whether we think they're right or they're wrong. And the Pharisees thought they were right. But the Pharisees had just gone way beyond what was biblical, what was morally right. So Jesus went, went, just went straight to the word of God to settle this. Because that was his foundation. That is supposed to be our foundation. This is what I'm saying. This wasn't political for Jesus. It was a matter of what is holy and what his father said was right. That's what mattered. So as crazy as it seems, that's where we get to a situation where there's a man with a deformed hand. Who knows how long it's been deformed, but it's a deformed hand. is standing in front of these people, standing on their moral high ground, and they didn't want Jesus to heal him. Can you think about the craziness of that for a second? They know he can do it. They know he can do it. They've seen him do it. And he's standing there, and because it's a particular day of the week, they don't want Jesus to heal this man. Because their philosophy, their stance... The stance of their philosophy was more important than the actual person who was suffering standing in front of them. Does that sound different than where we are as a country right now? Be honest. Does it sound that much different? This is where we get the us and them mentality, church. This is where we get the, the, the ominous they. Yeah, there's them out there. But we stop treating people like people. We stop treating people that they have a story, that they have a reason, that they have a process they walk through to get to where they are. And so we treat them as them, as evil, as they, instead of treating them as a people group. And so we'll, we'll, end, up, we'll end up turning entire people groups into they. Our moral superiority, superiority becomes more important than people. So we can treat them as them as the enemy, instead of our neighbors, that scripture clearly communicates that we love, even if they are enemies. What does God say that we do to our enemies? We love them. Loving does not mean we agree on everything. Loving doesn't mean that we tolerate things that are unbiblical. That's, not what, that's what our culture says is love, but that's not biblical love. We love them as God loves So what was Jesus' response to them in verse 7, this biblical response? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I don't desire your moral superiority or your perfect rule following. I don't desire your self-righteous factions and rules. I desire, you, I desire for you to have mercy as God has had mercy on you. Listen, standing up for what is biblically right is extremely important. Extremely important. That's what Jesus is actually doing here. We're going to see him do that, the, all the stories today. He's standing up for what is biblically right, but it can't come at the cost of mercy. It can't come at the cost of your moral high ground so you can't show mercy to people because you're right or you think you're right. Truth and mercy, right? Biblical truth and and loving your neighbor as yourself must exist together. How many political debates nowadays is that a part of? Nationally, social media, or even in your home. So the first thing that we can learn from Jesus on how we engage into the world politically is we are to be driven by mercy, understanding, and compassion, not by moral superiority. Second story, turn to Matthew 19. Turn to Matthew 19, just go right in your Bibles a few pages. And this one we're going to start in verse 1 also. And we're going to read through verse 9 today. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, and he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond, beyond and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees, again the religious leaders, came up to him and tested him by asking, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command, command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, today the topic is not really about divorce and remarriage and all that stuff today. We could get into that, but that's not really what today is about. What today is about is this is another highly political issue from them with all kinds of camps at the time. Now, this is still a a political issue today, isn't it? For us, it's a lightning rod because what did Jesus say? From the beginning, he created the male and female. Like, that's the point that Jesus is making, like God's design for how this looks. This is still, 2,000 years later, this is a lightning rod of political debate over the last five, ten years in our culture in particular. And so there were bitter divisions in Jesus' time over, over this, just like there is in ours right now, right? They were setting him up. This was a political topic. They're trying to bring Jesus down because no matter what he says, someone's going to be mad at him. And they know it. And that's what they keep trying to do. Set him up so there will be many factions angry with him because they're going to make Jesus pick a side. But again, does Jesus get into all the different political debates? Does he get into all the different factions? Because listen, here are the factions. There's some people that thought you could never get divorced no matter what. There's other factions that agreed with what Jesus said. You can only get divorced for the sake of adultery. There were other factions that, that it literally said, there was a factions in Jewish writing that says you can divorce your wife if she breaks a dish. What? There's another one that said you could divorce your wife if you found, found someone more fair, more pretty. Had it, whatever, whatever, like, that's how far apart these things went from breaking a dish to you could absolutely never get divorced. Now, did Jesus dive into all the divisions and all the political muck? Right, did he immediately go ahead first and try to find all of the nuance in this conversation? Like, listen, there's a lot of political debates that have nuance. I'm not saying there's not nuance. I'm not saying that it's not difficult sometimes. It absolutely is difficult sometimes. But I don't think it's as difficult as we make it. Jesus just gets right to the point. He says, have you not read? Meaning, have you not read exactly what God said all the way in the beginning? This word that you've had for 2,000 years, did you not go back and read it? There was a lot of things that Jesus could have dived into, but the point is, Jesus didn't let the politics of his day or the political factions or his culture or the leaders dictate his responses. And it would have cost him disciples, and it would have cost him followers, and he knew not only the Pharisees, but the people that trusted in the Pharisees or the people that wanted to divorce their husbands or wives for no reason, they were going to be really angry and maybe even hate, or some of them even want to kill Jesus, but he took on the persecution because it was right. Church, the reality is we have let our culture, we have let our politics define what we believe and how we vote and how we think. It's just reality. We couldn't be where we are in some of these things if that wasn't true. Our politics can never define our faith. Did you hear that? I don't care if you're libertarian or whatever you are, they can never define your faith. And so often I hear us talking from a point of view as as a libertarian or as a liberal or as a Democrat or whatever else, like it's mixed in so completely with who we are now that we can't separate out anymore what's biblical and what our culture says to do. And it's heartbreaking because our foundation is crumbling. It's falling apart. How can we stand for biblical truth if we don't even really understand what biblical truth is anymore and what God's calling us to? Our foundation has always, it always has to be biblical. Our culture can't decide from one year to the next anymore what's true. It's changing constantly. We have to stand on biblical truth. And if we would, I think a lot of these topics that are complicated, but I think they would get a lot less complicated, a lot less murky, a lot less nuanced. So here, I just have to say this boldly. And I think I'm going to get a yes and amen from a lot of you, but I want you to really think if this is true for you. Hear me, you are not a libertarian or a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat or a Republican or, hear me, or a patriot first. 
It's not even close. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God first. And being, hey, li- like, listen, loving your country, taking care of your country, yes and amen to that. Like, love the place and take care of the place where you are. But being a citizen of the kingdom of God is way up here, and being a patriot is way, way down here. God says in heaven, where every t- tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race, every culture, every person from every background is going to be sitting at God's table celebrating with Jesus who we are. That's your family. That's your citizenship. You are no more brothers and you are no more brothers and sisters in Christ with people in America than you are with people in India or Africa or Ethiopia or Brazil or Iraq. They are all our family. It doesn't matter where they came from. That's way up here, and being a patriot is way down here, or whatever political division you, you, you associate with or don't associate with because everybody's tired of politics, but you really associate with. You know where I'm going. We are citizens of the kingdom of God above all else and way above all else. We seek the kingdom of God. We seek what is biblical And we seek what is godly and holy long before we do the patriotic thing, long before we do the political thing. Jesus makes it all about the kingdom, not about politics. He he has this knack of taking the political argument and just nailing it down to what is scripture teaching us. So the second thing we can learn from Jesus is our politics must be fully, fully defined and influenced by what God says is right, by what is biblical. Let's look at our third story in Matthew 22. Go write a few more chapters to Matthew 22. And I think this might be the biggest political topic of them all for the Jews. I think this one, they're setting up Jesus more than any of the other ones they set Jesus up. So look at Matthew 22, and we're going to start reading in verse 15. Matthew 22, 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how, they, how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. Can we just stop there for a second? These are the religious leaders. These are the ones that everybody's supposed to look up to and follow their faith. Can you see why Jesus wasn't hard on really anybody except for these people? Do you see why? This is deception. This is lies. This is manipulation. They're complimenting Jesus and making like, well, we're on your side when they're intentionally sending people there to deceive, to trap. Again, what a political move. Is this not just politics in our country? I mean, Human nature doesn't change. People that say the Bible's not relevant anymore, that's just ridiculousness. People don't change. And these are supposed to be the people. This is why Jesus will call these people whitewashed tombs, right? You're pretty on the outside and you're like death on the inside. You're leading people to death and everybody's supposed to look up to you. You're supposed to be the ones to carry the weight of and lead people to God, yet you're leading them into death. You're leading them into hell. No wonder Jesus was so upset. Jesus was patient and gentle with everyone except for the religious leaders who are leading people to hell. That's why I take my role so seriously. Anyway, no more tangents. Verse 17. Tell us then what you, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, to Rome, or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. As I mentioned before, I don't know if there was a bigger political topic than this. So if you don't know the history of it, like I said before, Rome had conquered Israel, and Rome, Rome charged this huge tax to places they conquered. And so, one, Rome was in no way a godly empire, and no way followed the path of the Bible or God. They actually had false gods. In fact, that coin that they showed, that Jesus had shown, said Caesar's inscriptions on this, you know, that was typically on the back of that? One of the Roman gods, one of the false gods. Do you understand how this was hard for the, for the people of Israel? 
Not only that, so like what was really happening is they were paying Rome to oppress them. They're giving the money to Rome to finance their oppression. Can you see why people might have had a problem with this? Can you see why this may have created all kinds of divisions and anger and bitterness and resentment? I don't think any of us can even possibly understand. I don't want to even give the people a hard time for this being difficult. How difficult would this be? Especially when you're ruled over by a government, by an empire, who in no way aligns with Scripture or what you believe. It would be terrible. Financing your own oppression. So the religious leaders, who are almost only acting like political leaders at this point, are setting Jesus up for failure because there's no way he can answer this where he's going to please everyone. There's no way. But what was his response? Pay Caesar's what is Caesar's and God's what is God's. Meaning pay your tithes and pay your taxes. So Jesus is affirming a couple things right here that are very explicitly said later in scripture. One is this, as we see in Romans 13, as we see in 1 Peter 2, as we see in other places, we are to submit to the governmental authorities over us. No buts, right? It gets nuanced. It can get a little nuanced, but like we always want to look for the justification. We always want to look for the nuance. This is what God's, pay your taxes, I know, they, I know they're not going to use it for biblical purposes. Jesus can say, I know they're not going to use it for godly things, but what does he say? Pay your taxes. Why? Because whether they do the godly thing or not, God has appointed them. That's what Scripture teaches. Those who are in authority over you, those in particular, those who are in government, governmental authorities over you are appointed by God. Now, I want us to carry the weight of this because in Peter's time, when Peter wrote that in 1 Peter 2, the Christians were under heavy persecution from Nero, who was a maniac. Heavy persecution from Nero. They were killing Christians. And what does Peter say? Submit to your government authorities. And then what does he say? And honor the governors and the emperor. I know some of you hate Trump. Some of you hate Biden. Some of you hate left. Some of you hate right. Whatever. But can you imagine the leader of the church, Peter, saying, you know that guy that's killing us? Honor him. It doesn't mean we agree. He was saying to honor the emperor. That is mind-blowing to me. And for me, it just seems to blow so many of this yeah, buts just out of the water. Honor Rome? Are you kidding me? Honor Nero? I think that's even worse. Are you kidding me? But that's what it communicates. Because in the end, this isn't about what people deserve. Because God hasn't given us what we deserve. In Jesus Christ, God has given us mercy and grace. Jesus came. And we all know the story, but just think about it. The guys who nailed the spikes into his hands, the guys who murdered him, who then others that came by and spit on him and humiliated him as he hung there, the Son of God, Jesus cries down, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's mercy. It doesn't mean we don't stand up against what is wrong or evil. Yes, we need to do that. Like, that's not not the discussion. It's not, yeah, but this. Yes, that can be absolutely true. We stand against evil. We stand against what is biblically wrong. And it can also be true that we honor and we show mercy and we forgive and we show grace, whether it is deserved or not. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. That's how, we, that's how we operate in today's political environment. Yeah, I want, to be, I want to show mercy or be gentle or be kind, but this. No, we can fight for truth and be full of mercy. And one of those ways we do this, we show honor to those who God has put over us. So yes, he says, pay your taxes or submit to your government officials. But second, he also says, don't forget to pay God what's his. Because in the end, this is ultimately about trust, church. Do you think God needs your money? He's God. The reason that God, like that that giving to God, giving of your finances is such a big deal is because so much of us hold so, so tight control over our life by how much money we have in the bank, if we have enough to spend. Like money represents control. Money represents comfort. Money represents us not living in fear. And so God wants us to give to him. He says, give to God what is God. So, because this is a matter of trust. 
that ultimately we trust God to avenge. We trust God to do the right thing. We trust God even in the governmental officials over us who aren't godly at all, even when we vehemently disagree with the things that they do. So, so the third thing we can learn from Jesus is when we engage politically, except in cases when we are expressly asked or commanded to do something that is unbiblical, we submit to government authorities. And at the same time, no matter what happens, we honor everyone, whether we agree or not. That's how we're going to shine the light of Christ, church. Holiness means to be set apart. It means pure and set apart. This is how we're set apart. By not giving people what they deserve, as Christ did not give us what we deserve. That's mercy. So, so far what we've seen from Jesus on engaging the world politically is one We are to lead with mercy, not moral superiority. Two, our politics must always be driven and defined by our faith and what God says is true in his word, never by culture or our political camp. And third, we engage in a posture of willing submission of our government and always, always, always honoring our governmental officials no matter what. No matter what. Honoring no matter what. We don't submit no matter what, right, if they ask us to do something unbiblical, but we always honor. We always honor. And so for our last story today is going to be Jesus telling us how we engage the world, just in general, but I think it speaks volumes into how we engage politics. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Go back left in your Bibles a little ways. And this is what's going to be, um, well, this is what's called, the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This, might, this is arguably the most famous sermon that Jesus ever, ever gave, and it's fantastic. I really encourage you this week, read Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 this week. Just read the whole thing. It's so good. We're going to just talk about briefly the first 11 verses. So read with me in Matthew 5, verse 1 through 11. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll get to the end, but I don't know that there's ever been a time when that really had any real reality for us in the United States in the protected Western culture until the last few years. So we'll get there, but let's start in verse 3. What does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know what poor in spirit means? Those who know they need God's help. Those who know that they need God for their salvation Church, you know why this is so important in the political environment? Because this puts us all on completely equal footing. There is no moral superiority when we're all, we all start from the same place. We are all in desperate need. It's why Jesus Christ went to the cross for all of us. It's why he hung there and absorbed all of our sin and all of God's wrath because we're all poor in spirit, but his spirit was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He was everything that we couldn't be. So he said, I'll go to the cross and be that for you so that I can make you new in me. I can put my holiness in you and you can grow into that holiness and know your God more and more and more. We are all poor in spirit. It, you unites us with everybody else on the planet. And sometimes those who are the most against us, to say the most vile, hurtful, evil things, they're the ones that need to know this the most. Yet we're too, we're too busy telling them how wrong they are to see that their souls may be bound for hell, and God's called us to be his light to the world. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, but we're too busy using our mouths to use our hands and feet to love people well. 
Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God is near those who are suffering. He is near those who need to be comforted. He's, He's near those who have been through a lot. And hear me, suffering is a part of all of our lives. All of us. And the reality is, church, we don't know what people have been through. We don't know the tragedy and the suffering and the pain that has helped define who they've become and what they believe. And there's been plenty of people in my life that I just thought I was going to be against. I thought there's no, we have nothing in common. There's nothing that for us to agree on until I sat down with them and I heard their story and everything changes. And hearing someone's story doesn't mean we agree on everything. You realize that's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about agreeing. But when you hear someone's story, because I was talking about this with someone before sermon, we've all been through hard things and we've all suffered. And at one point in time, almost all of us in this room felt at least, at least once in our life, most of us way more than that, that life was going to crush us. The pain and the suffering of this life, how are we going to make it? How are we going to pull through? If you've never been there, man, praise God for that, but, but it, I don't want to scare you, but it's coming for you, right? It's one of the things that unites us all in our suffering. And so what would happen if we started, stopped treating people as them and started treating people as someone just with a story, maybe a story different than ours? We saw, I'm going to be a person that seeks to understand, to know, to know their pain, to know their sorrow, to know what defined them, to know where they came from. So then maybe we might find common ground. Maybe we might be able to move forward together, at least in some ways. Maybe we might be able to have a real conversation where it's not about, I'm right, no, you're right. But we actually listen. As I say all the time, most of us are not interested in real conversations. We're waiting for our turn to talk. But what if we weren't waiting for our turn to talk? What if we actually heard? As we talked about last week, what if we were reasonable, like we showed dignity to people and we heard their stories and stopped treating them as a them or a they and start treating them as our neighbor because we're all united in the fact that we are poor in spirit and we're all united in the fact that this life is hard and we've all got a story. And maybe we took it seriously that it's, it's our job as God's people to speak the truth into those painful stories. So I loved Corey getting up here. Corey's got a painful story. But somebody actually listened to it at some point and shared Jesus with her and everything changed. That's not going to happen every time we do it, but, but could it happen sometimes? Could God do that sometimes? It's not going to happen from the moral high ground, I promise you. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, those who are gentle, those who are humble, Is this how you approach the political environment in our country? With meekness. It's those who aren't quick to assert their power or their opinions over others, but in humility and gentleness seek to love and truly understand their neighbor. I think I said this a few weeks ago. Everybody likes to point to the story where Jesus pulls out the whip, right? But how many other stories in the New Testament can we align? How many other stories of Jesus and how he operated? Or how many other stories in the New Testament can we align to that kind of righteous anger? There is righteous anger. There is. If we hear about a kid getting abused, it should make us angry. But that anger should be righteous and should immediately drive us to action, to prayer, to engagement, to doing something. And when we go to engage, we don't come in yelling. We come in with meekness, gentleness, and listen, godly strength. But godly strength isn't screaming and yelling and being morally superior. That's not what real strength looks like. It's much harder to be meek and humble than to yell and be angry. Anger is easy. Meekness is hard. Anger is not manly or womanly. Meekness is And listen, of course that still means we share truth. Of course that means we still call out sin when sin comes. Jesus did not hesitate in calling out sin. But we do it in humility, always trying to lead people into the love of God, always trying to lead people to Jesus, fighting against policies that we think are wrong or that are evil or or even unbiblical. Man, that's good and right. But if we are doing with hatred and division and bitterness and name-calling and brutal opinions, we are not walking as a disciple of Christ. We're not walking in the way of Christ. That is the way of darkness. It just is. This is not an opinion. This is what Scripture calls darkness. We walk in the way of light. 
the way of reasonableness and dignity and understanding and meekness. That's godly, that's womanly, that's manly. Verse 6 says, those, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We should long for justice. We should long for what is right. And so this is a great reminder for me that we don't trust in our government or policy or particular political leaders to save us or to give us justice or righteousness. Praise God when it happens. It's actually their role. It's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to execute justice. But ultimately, governments and policies and governmental leaders are never going to truly satisfy us when it comes to justice and righteousness. We can be hypocritical and judge them, but we can't always be righteous. We can't always execute justice. We can't always get it right. We trust in Jesus to be our righteousness, to be our justice, and to be our hope in these things. In the end, this is a beautiful reminder that we trust God as our hope, as our peace, for only he can give us what's right, what is just, what is righteous, what is righteous. Hear me, hear me. We must not fear. I know that's an easy thing for me to say and a really hard thing to actually execute in real life. But when it comes to who is elected and what policy is passed, yes, there is grief in that. Yes, there is discouragement. That I'm not saying, like, right? It, we're going to be discouraged sometimes. We're gonna, there's, there's godly grief in those things sometimes. There's even righteous anger in those things sometimes. But ultimately, we must not fear, church. We must never lose hope no matter who is elected or what policy is passed no matter how bad the situation seems, for we are only truly going to find righteousness and are only going to, in the end, be satisfied in Christ. He will satisfy us. Every other human institution will let us down. Do not fear, church, for we, find our satisfi- sat- we are satisfied in Christ. Verse 7 says, Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think Jesus already covered this, for, this one for us in Matthew 12. We give mercy to all, for we have received mercy upon mercy. Never self-righteous fury, but always self-sacrificing mercy. Verse 8, said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love this one. Do you know why? I feel like it just sums up. In one, in one sentence, in one little sentence, it sums up everything we covered in week two and three of this series. Right? What's another word for pure or purity? Holiness, right? And it's not the same Greek word here, so it's not an exact definition. I'm not saying it is, but like one of the hallmarks of holiness is perfect purity, to be set apart as perfectly pure. And so, church, as we walk in the holiness of Christ, as we treat, treat others in purity, as we act in purity, as we think about pure, holy things, God is transforming us into the image of Christ. That's how we know God more. He's saying, those who are pure, for they shall see God, because we're going to become more like Christ. His holiness is going to become more and more a part of who we are and define who we are. And when we walk in holiness, we are going to see who God is, who he truly is. If we can do that, church, if we can walk in holiness, if we can walk in purity, we'll not only be a beautiful reflection of the gospel to the world, which is what this is about, reflecting the gospel for the glory of God, but we will know the beauty and the mercy and the love of God in deeper and deeper and deeper ways as we are transformed in the image of Christ. It's beautiful. Holiness transforms politics. Verse 9. Is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Oh, church, what if this was us in the political arena? What if we were the peacemakers? Can you even imagine? We'd be hated, but what could they really say? If we follow Jesus, we're always going to be hated. There's always going to be people that hate us, but what could they really say? That's why other passages in Scripture says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but do the godly thing, do the right thing, be a reflection of Christ, so even when they come to accuse you, they'll be made to look like a fool. That's who we're meant to be, peacemakers. What if we sought peace before division? What if we sought peace before opinions? What if we sought peace before the fight? Sometimes the fight's worth having, but what if we sought peace before the fight? Ultimately, this is talking about the peace that comes only in Jesus Christ. What if our political debates and our thoughts were driven wholly by seeing the peace of Jesus Christ, salvation, 
come to those around us? What if that was our driving force? What if that was the thing that was constantly transforming our minds? How might that change the way we treat everyone, treat all others? How might that even change the way we voted? We are people of peace, and we are to point the way to the person of peace, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in verses 10 and 11, it says that blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for their faith. Church, I have seen so much fear and anger and cursing of our government and our culture for this real or perceived persecution that is here now or that might be coming. So much fear. Like, this is what I was talking about earlier. You didn't used to hear a lot of this. It was kind of this out there concept, but it's become much more real to us. And you know what? When it comes to persecution for being Christian, for standing up for what's biblical, you know, you're probably right. More persecution is coming if we hold fast to what the Bible teaches. I agree with that. I think we will be hated. I think we will be reviled. I think we may even be persecuted. And you know what my answer to that is? Like, this is just blunt, but here's my answer to this. Are we going to trust God or not? Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust our fear and anger? Like, I know I'm oversimplifying a very difficult thing. Listen, for those of you who struggle with fear and anxiety, this is not condemnation, right? This is meant to set you free. There is hope, right? But those are the, two, the, those are the only two choices. Trust in who God says he is and what he will do, or trust your fear and anger. Those are the two choices. Not easy. It's simple. But in the execution, it's not easy, and I realize that. God says if persecution comes and we hold fast to him and his word, we will be blessed. Do you believe that? I know it doesn't even feel completely rational, but like this is not a good recommendation. This is a promise from God that if people hate you, and does anybody want to be hated? If you want to be hated, you're probably off already, right? But we'll probably be hated and reviled for holding fast to what the Bible teaches. And what does God say? That if that comes and you hold fast to me, I'll reward you in heaven. That's a promise. Now, do we follow God and do the things that we're supposed to do so that we'll get rewards in heaven? No, that we do it for the glory of God because it's right. But we don't, have to, we don't have to apologize for the fact that God says, if you do these things and you're faithful, I'll reward you in heaven. He will reward us in heaven with whatever reward that looks like. That might just mean more of him and praise God for that, right? But he's saying if persecution comes, if you're hated, if you're reviled for my sake, you will be blessed and your reward in heaven will be great. What are we really afraid of? Of course, none of us long for these things. I don't long for these things. I don't want these things. But in the end, do we trust our emotions and our fear? Or do we trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Throughout time, God has done incredible things through times of persecution. Through times of persecution is most often when he does the most incredible things. Not to mention the persecution of Jesus Christ when the actual son of God came down out of heaven and died for all of us because he was heavily hated and persecuted and then has sent his disciples into a world, into the world which 11 of 12 of them were killed for their faith under heavy persecution, but through their faith and through them trusting in the blessings and the reward of heaven changed the world. Changed the world. What are we afraid of, church? I, I know practically what, that we're afraid of persecution and being hated. I understand. Of course, I understand. But what are we trusting? It may come. It may not. But either way, the promises of God is what we stand on and what we trust in. So we move forward with confidence and we move forward in hope. Confidence and hope. That's what we get to hold on to, church. That's what God's promising us. Don't cast it aside. It's not a good recommendation. It's promises. Confidence and hope. Church, we're going to get into specific topics that could be viewed as political. They're not. They're biblical. But it could be viewed as political topics as we walk through the rest of the series. But this week is the foundation for that. The whole series has been the foundation. But we're talking about political topics. This is the foundation. So here's what I want to ask you to do today. I want, you to do, I want you to try to push all of the debates 
and all of the caveats and all of the exceptions and all of the yeah, buts out of your heart and mind and just dwell on the things that Jesus showed us today. Man, our politics are just full of caveats, and I get it. It's complicated. I just want us to dwell on what Jesus said and how he reacted today. Of course, the politics in our country are more complicated than I made it today. I know that. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. But the fact of the matter is, how can we rightly handle all of those complications if our foundation is faulty? And then what I said before is what I've seen in our culture and what I've even seen within the church is our foundation isn't just faulty, it's crumbling beneath us. So we need to rebuild the foundation before we can even talk about these other things. So here's my ask this week, church, is beg God, beg Him to help you get all of the muck and the mire out of your brain and heart so it can be transformed to be more like Christ and be centered fully on Him. And ask Him to help you Ask him to help you to dwell on how he is asking us to engage in politics of our day. Listen, beg God to help you lead from mercy. To help you lead and stand on a biblical foundation only. And for you to be a person that willingly submits and gives honor to people even if you vehemently disagree with them. And then finally, that he would help you to truly be meek and poor in spirit and pure and be a peacemaker and for us to fully walk in confidence and hope in who he is and who he says we are in him. We can be different, church. And not for difference's sake. We can be different for Christ's sake. We don't have to be one more drowned out voice in a sea of hate. But we can be a bright, shining light in an, just an ocean of darkness. We can. We must. We truly can be people that even in politics glorifies God and advances the gospel. Oh, church, I have been and will be praying that we can be. Pray with me. Oh God, I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy for us. That even when we're talking about difficult topics like today, we don't, as, as believers, as, as if we're a follower of you, Jesus, that we don't have to walk in condemnation or, or, or feel terrible about ourselves, but we can see where we, we have fallen short and know that Jesus Christ died for those failures so that we can move forward. God, I pray that nobody in this room, if they're feeling convicted right now, would let condemnation rule over their heart, but a joy in the fact that they can be forgiven and can move forward. Because Jesus, you died on that cross to set us free. And that you, you were raised from the dead that show us that sin and power and debt, the, the power of death had no power over you so that we truly can be new. We truly can move forward. And so God, I pray that we, you just help us to listen to you today. Man, there is so much noise out there trying to drown you out and drown out who we're called to be in you. God, we are in desperate need of your help in this. And so God, we pray for your help today. Help us to live for your glory. Help us not to get caught up in all of the argument, arguing and the hate and the division and the bitterness and the name-calling and the moral high ground. Help us to be far more concerned with leading people to you, with standing on a biblical foundation. And then God, help us, help us to be willing to be hated for your sake. God, I know that's a bold prayer, but it's so clear in your word. Help us to be willing to be reviled if it's for you. God, we don't long for it. I pray against it. I pray that persecution wouldn't come. God, but if it does, help us to find our confidence and our hope in you, our firm foundation. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this family that in so many ways already reflects this. As Corey said earlier, God, that what a loving place this is. But God, I know we can be more. 
we can be a light that leads the way and not, not for freshwater's sake because in the end, who cares about freshwater? We care about you because we are your bride. We are your church. Help us to be a light in the darkness for your glory, for your name. For Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.